hidden smoking gun that we're sitting on at this point. Yeah. It's just constantly following up. And, and you know, and, and the timing of the interviews interesting because it's Detective Kameni's last day here before he retires and, and starts his chapter two. But the rest of us are still here. And when when new leads come in, we're gonna follow them the same and, and delegate whatever resource we need to to either prove or disprove that, that new theory. And the issue is, is that this is, at this point, everything surrounding Damien has become folklore. It's like a local legend. On face value, you have the dark and twisted, you know, thing. That's just, that adds to the folklore. On, at, at face value, if you look at him, you see the, the dark and twisted, you know, drug user who, you know, who looks gothic or wears trench coats. And then you have, you know, the female friends that basically said, yeah, I could, I could get blackout drunk or passed out high. And I knew that if I was with Damien, nothing would happen to me, you know? And then the other kids from high school that, you know, well, I didn't really know Damien, but some kid was trying to stuff me in a locker one day and he came and told him to knock it off. So you have like all these different versions, versions of Damien Sharp. I can't get two people to describe him exactly the same way, you know? Everybody has a slightly different version of Damien. Mm -hmm. Even his family, even his family. I wish I had more insight on it. From Your Daily Local and Two Moms Media and Warren PA, this is Smoke, The Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. I didn't go into this story intending to investigate anything outside of what I do for a newspaper. And to this day, I'm not working for Damien's family. I'm not working for the police. I'm not working for anyone who's paid me to do any of this. Brian and I accept donations and sell bonus content because, let's face it, we're trying to raise families while also contributing something to the world that adds value where it was needed. But no one handed us money and said, find out what happened to Damien. Neither of us have any law enforcement background whatsoever, so we decided early that it was not just the right thing to do, but also wise to reach out to the city of Warren PD before we even posted a single thing about Damien, or our intention to amplify and expand his story on social media. But as information started trickling and then flowing in, it became apparent that there was no way it all had been collected in one central source. Hell, half the people I spoke with said they wouldn't share what they were telling me with the police, even if the police interviewed them, or that they had shared it with police and they didn't know whether it was compiled in the case file or not. Some of the information I've gotten that's tangential to Damien's case, it actually deserves its own year of my attention, if I'm honest. So as I started collecting rumors, making hashtags next to the loose titles and genres of the rumors that existed, it became apparent that someone needed to be doing this now before the legends developed deeper and deeper roots and became harder and harder to untangle. The lead investigator on Damien's case changed multiple times with Tony Comenti taking the reins first, then passing the lead to Rick Brecht a year later. Comenti resumed the lead role in the case in 2008 and held it until retiring on January 9th of this year. I was able to catch Tony on his last day as the Warren PD's lead detective. He and Chief Joe Spraveri gave us an hour of their time that day, but the department has provided access to numerous videos, files, documents, 
and other evidence in order to help us corroborate and verify the stories we hear. With all those changes, fine-level details, where the devil's said to be, was bound to be lost in translation, but that wasn't the only thing holding the investigation back. A mutual distrust between Damien's family and local law enforcement developed early in the case. From the family's perspective, police were more concerned with the potential drug aspect of Damien's disappearance than with finding him. Dana said when she and Janine went to the department on June 3rd, they initially didn't feel a lot of interest. So, and I told her, I can't file missing persons. We found a new apartment, everything like that, and what we found. So, uh, Janine didn't drive. She didn't like driving or whatever. So, uh, I had to go pick her up. She lived in Celeron, get her back here. We got to the police department. It was late. I'm not sure at the time, 9, 11, somewhere in there. And uh, the doors were closed, and so, you know, somewhere around the back. So we went around to the back. I don't know if we beat, buzz, knock, whatever. And, you know, they said, you know, okay, help me just want to talk about a missing person. And, well, you know, they just didn't seem interested at all, you know. Well, they probably seemed, it's 11 o'clock at night. Someone didn't come home, you know. How old is he, 22? Okay, whatever. And um, and finally we said, well, we think maybe drugs were involved, you know, because we've seen those notes at the house, you know. Oh, okay, then they would talk a little bit, but... Police believed family held back potential information, even going so far as to clean Damien's apartment before reporting him missing in order to keep any potential criminal activity on his part from coming out. You see all these shows about the, the, the importance of the first 48 hours in any investigation, and, and, and it's, it's valid. I wasn't, you know, like I said, when this happened, I was still in high school. However, from everything... And Tony can speak on it more, but from everything that I understand, and I don't believe this was very well publicized at the time to protect people, but that apartment had been cleaned up, organized. If, if there was anything of evidentiary value that did exist, it was gone by the time this was reported. He, he left everything there. He left his wallet. He left everything. I mean, that's what the story is in the paper. Right. Everything was still there. Um, so... You get the call. They come down. They come down to the... Can you just kind of give me the, the first few weeks of your investigation and what what were you thinking as you went into it? Yeah, I mean, we we had to have them go and get a declaration, obviously. Um, there's a declaration saying that he was missing, um, obviously, because there was no... As far as we knew, there was no extenuating circumstances other than that he was missing. The, the only thing that we knew was that he hadn't reported in. He hadn't talked to his mother in a couple weeks. Um... The brother had said, the brother and the um, uh, the, the mother's sister, uh, Dana, um, said that she hadn't seen him, she hadn't talked to him. The brother hadn't talked to him. Um, I can't remember if the initial was that the boys were supposed to meet up with him or something like that. I can't remember what the exact word, word wordage was, but the mother was concerned because she hadn't heard from him, and that was what what her concern was that she hadn't heard from him. And that had been and she, out of character. And that was out of character. At this point in time. It, yeah. So, I mean, that was what mom's concern was, that she hadn't heard from him. And so I said, you know, I was advised to let them know that they had to have a declaration signed that he was missing. And is that like, what's that process? Um, I believe they had to get it notarized. Okay. So they had to go to uh, Art Zerby's office, which mm-hmm. was a district manager, district magistrate at the time. Mm-hmm. So they had to have that signed. And I believe they had, it was the next day, obviously, because he was open. And they had to have it notarized. 
stating that he's missing, so they brought that back so that we can get an enter NCIC. Okay. Was so Stephen? Did Stephen come when they came? Was it or was it just Janine and Dana? I believe it was Janine and Dana, and then we had Stephen come in and we interviewed him. Um, and that was the process. That's how it started. Was we interviewed people, and I believe we interviewed Dana, we interviewed Stephen, we interviewed a bunch of people, like trying to figure out what was going on, you know. What and that's how it started. So, did you guys ever go to Prospect Street? Was it ever searched? Was there ever any the mansion house you talked about? Yeah, the apartments. Mansions? I believe uh, Officer Breck did all that. Okay. Okay. So that's a him question. Yeah. Okay. Because um, that's where it finally went. I mean. Mm -hmm. As far as the investigator investigation went, like anything that went further, because I got taken off of it. We we did the search of like when I did it, we did like the search of um, the forest. We started doing the bigger searches. Mm -hmm. um, when it got more involved um, of the who, what, when, where, and why of like suspects and stuff like that, we started getting. I started getting into more of talking to more people. Mm -hmm. It was getting deeper and deeper. Through the course of the investigation, two main suspects emerged. Both eventually landed in prison, but not for anything related to Damien. The first, his name is Frank, was arrested in 2015 and charged with running a corrupt organization. Basically, he was a contractor and owned rental properties, but instead of collecting rent, police said he'd let the folks who worked for him rent his properties in exchange for labor, enforcement, and food stamps. Frank is rumored to have told numerous associates that if they got out of line, he would do to them what he did to Damien. We spoke with Frank a few months ago. He's currently incarcerated in the state's correctional system, serving 7 to 15 years for corrupt organizations, drug charges, food stamp trafficking charges, and cruelty to animals. We'll tell you what Frank had to say in future episodes, but for now, know that the police have never named him as a suspect and Brian and I believe that his association to Damien's disappearance is rumor-based. We could always be wrong, but based on a year of deep investigation, we just can't find a lot of tangible proof that Frank even truly knew Damien, which he himself says he did not. If that changes, we'll of course let you know that. According to police sources, before Frank was sent to prison, he was offered a deal that would have been too good to pass up. What law enforcement calls a defendant's golden goose. If he was actually involved in Damien's disappearance, Frank likely could have shaved significant time off that 7-15 year sentence, our sources told us. And all he would have had to do was give police enough to recover Damien's remains. The second suspect in the court of public opinion was, at the time, and remains, for many, a man called James. James actually showed up on law enforcement's radar before Frank in the actual timeline of events. He was, Detective Comenti confirmed, a person he was interested in when it came to Damien's disappearance, but no evidence ever surfaced that justified charging him with anything in the case either. James was the last person anyone knew to have seen Damien alive. That is, until we interviewed a news source to the case a few months ago. James saw Damien at his apartment, 332 Prospect, the Prospect Mansions. You've heard of that place already. That's where Damien allegedly went to buy some weed before Memorial Day festivities kicked off that Saturday night, May 25th, 2002. James confirmed to us last fall, after I reached out to him on Facebook, that he did see Damien that night and that Damien was there to buy some weed. Rumors that Damien was selling harder drugs like cocaine or that Damien was into doing harder drugs like meth on a regular basis have not borne out in the research so far. 
Those things may be true, but we can't find anything tangible to show you to say he was for sure. But James does confirm that Damien was looking for a pound of weed that night. He also says that he and Damien parted ways on the street outside the apartment around 6 p.m. that evening with plans to meet up at a big party on Brown Run Road later. Damien's friend Danica described that setting to you in the last episode, but here's a quick recap. So, of course, there was supposed to be a party Memorial Day that weekend. Right. There was always a party every Memorial Day weekend. And it was like not one spot on Brown Run. It was all of them. Everybody, like, they, different cliques would have, like, different areas. Okay. And, like, it would be all up and down. So, like, who knows what party you would end up at. You could walk up and down and just go to a different party. Now, is it on Brown Run itself or is it on 160? Yeah, it was, like, all sorts of different places up in there. There was all sorts of different, like, areas people would care. We could, like, go to all sorts of different parts. Who gravitated to where up there? It, well, just you depended. never know. Yeah. You never knew. They but, just found know, their spot when they got yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like, there could have been, like, a group of us that went up. I didn't go to that one this, that year because okay. I ended up having to, like, work or something, I think. Okay. And I, uh... Like, like if we would all go as like a group, like mm-hmm. say like I knew somebody at one party and the other people didn't like it, they would just leave me there and go to a different party. I'd be like, all right, I'll catch up with you later. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you never knew who you were going to see at any kind of party. Yeah. So Was it, did you ever witness any altercations or was there ever like problems like that? Or people just minded their business and mm-hmm. stayed with their people? No, I mean, there were and people didn't like people or there was you know some dude hit on some dude's girlfriend or you know dumb shit like that but it It wasn't like anything yeah you were in danger out there right yeah not like that right okay no 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 do you feel like he went to the woods that night or do you feel like something happened in town like just your personal i think my personal opinion is i think he was James got into some trouble in August of 2002. James and Damien had become friends of our mutual love of controlled combat. They'd been planning to train together, James told us, but Damien's busted knee had put a damper on that for the time being. James was known for being out late, though. Living on Prospect, he was within a mile or so of the middle school track, football field, basketball courts, and other places to basically find a gym for free. Pull-ups on railings or monkey bars jogging the track in the wee hours of the morning. James had a reputation for being a hard ass, but he told me last fall that he doesn't feel it fits. I've done wrong in the past is basically what James told me over the course of several weeks, talking back and forth on Messenger. But his general message was that he was never out there looking to hurt people, though he acknowledges that his lifestyle led him to in fact hurt people. His August 2002 charge was for an assault that took place at Freddy's Bar on Warren's east side, near where all these cats lived. James actually moved closer to Freddy's at the end of July that year, according to a detailed rental ledger kept by the Prospect Mansion's landlord, which was shared with us by family members. We thank them for their help in providing documentation and evidence that to us as journalists and to this project is invaluable. During the August altercation, according to the original affidavit signed by Tony Comenti, he and Officer Scott Taylor arrived at the bar to find someone laying in a moderate-sized pool of his own blood, motionless. Mm. 
your affiant and Officer Taylor were called to Freddy's Bar, located at 1207 Penad East, for a fight call. Upon arrival, your affiant observed one of the suspects on the sidewalk, laying in a moderate-sized pool of his own blood, motionless. Your affiant had found that the other actor was not immediately present at the scene. Numerous individuals pointed at a lone individual walking back to the scene, stating, It was him. The defendant stated to your affiant that he was the guy that engaged in a fight with the subject. The defendant stated that he had been drinking since 11 a.m. today, and your affiant smelled a strong odor of an alcoholic beverage emitting from his breath. The defendant also stated that he had only hit the injured man twice, and he hit the concrete sidewalk hard. The defendant was taken into custody and transported to Warren General Hospital for treatment of minor injuries. The defendant was Mirandized at 2250 hours, and he stated that he engaged in a fight with The defendant hit him at least twice with his fist, to which fell to the ground, striking his head. The injuries the victim suffered from the assault were a closed head injury from the back portion of the head and a fractured neck. I, Patrolman Anthony Cimenti, duly sworn according to the law, depose and say that the facts set forth in the foregoing affidavit are true and correct, to the best of my knowledge, information, and belief. This all went down just after 9.30 p.m. on a city street a few months after Damien went missing. By that point, Kameni would already have had at least one interview with James regarding where the hell Damien might be. Not a friendly banter type of situation, but not quite an interrogation either, and now he was arresting him for what looked like a body slam to broken neck situation, but turned out to be a jaw basically snapped off at the spitty part. What you would not have gotten from reading your local newspaper's blotter the day or two afterward is that the man James knocked the F out had dated his mother when he was younger. By his own admission, he was maybe not the best domestic partner and caregiver at the time. Not that he had it coming, this man told us. What James did to him was indefensible for any reason, and James himself confirmed this to me. But James wasn't just out for random blood that night either. This was a kid who grew up saying, if I ever get the chance to get him back, as an adult, I'll put hands on him. Well, this dude walked into a bar that James happened to be drinking at, and it just so happened that that felt like the time for James to make good on his childhood promise of vendetta. Even I made choices about what to remove from that blotter item and what to leave in. Because the fact is, my job is to explain to you what law enforcement was seeing and dealing with at that time. One of the main characters in one of the main rumors about what happened to Damien wound up catching some pretty serious charges two months after Damien went missing. Sorry guys, but that's statistically significant. What's not statistically significant or necessary to report at all are the details of that crime. This is what's known as an editorial decision, and they have to be made every single day on the fly for so much content that your head would spin. We're going to investigate why the newspaper writes what it does and why it has access to what it does and when it does and basically how that sausage gets made every day and all night long before you wake up to the morning edition. We have things to say on that. Many things. But first, let's take a quick break. 
Hey guys, we're producing this podcast for you and making sure you can access it without spending a dime because it's important for everyone to know the fullest possible truth of Damien's story. This content is free because both Your Daily Local and Two Moms Media believe in a press free from government or corporate oversight, but free to consume as well. If you think you're entitled to quality reporting without a subscription cost, you're in luck because so do we. Brian and I both support the creators and media outlets we find to have worked the hardest and the most ethically to provide the content we rely on to make important decisions in our lives, mostly because we know the amount of work that goes into creating it. We don't expect you to know that, but we do hope that content like this, honest, person-centered pieces of substance, reporting that takes a faint but worthy voice and elevates it to the platform it deserves, is of enough value to you as listeners to consider throwing us a few bucks in exchange. We're still going to give you the content, but your support helps us do more of this and better. We want to do so much more for you guys. Consider helping us. In the last section of this episode, we gave you just a few brief snapshots into a couple of the most common rumors surrounding this case, but it shows how much impact each rumor has on the course of the investigation. Here's Detective Comenti on what that impact looks like and Chief Spreveri with some additional context. And then when you get to that point and people start telling you stuff and you just look at them and you go, come on, you know, and you know that, and it's the circle and it's, that's the frustrating part. And, and that's the part I hope uh, that when Tiffany or whoever else, they can call me up and they say, hey, this is what I heard. And I'm sitting there, I'll just, hopefully I can just sit there and go, look at page <laughs> 9,852. We've already been through this. It's a circle. You know, I mean, I, I, I won't be able to reference that exactly, obviously, right. but, you know. Uh, you guys have been through a lot of circles. You've been through a lot of circular evidence, a lot of circumstantial stuff. Um, yeah. And that's what's the worst part. We came to a head, thank goodness where you've chased so many circles that mm-hmm. you know when the circle has been chased. Mm-hmm. And, and when I reference a circle, um, there's been so many circles. It's a spinning circle. And Can you talk about some of them? Like what, I mean, I know that there's a lot of different theories and I know that some of them are more <clears throat> ridiculous than others, but are there some that come up and you hear them and you're just like, Jesus, here we go again? <clears throat> Well, circles come up in different times in different areas. Um, obviously, the first circles come up when he first came missing. Mm-hmm. When he first came missing, the circle was when the first uh, when the first things of why he came missing, mm-hmm. and it was a drug deal. This a drug deal that this much money, and and it was a huge circle then. And it's obviously a, a massive circle that comes into a smaller circle and a big, you know, and depending on who you hear it from, how big that circle is. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have to generate who, the who, what, when, where, and why, grab the people that you know are in that circle, and try and limit that circle. Mm-hmm. But when you start getting people that are outside that circle, the circle obviously gets bigger. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to limit your circle and... and depending on how big that circle is, is how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. Because if it's just us three, if we if we keep that circle to that, then that's how that's, big that circle is, yeah. right? That's so, where it stays. Yeah. 
it's it's the phone game. Yeah. You know, just like anything else. I mean. Well, that's a really good segue, I think, to talk about the rumors and how all of the rumors and the rumor mill kind of affects your ability to investigate this case as officers. And I mean, you might want to jump in, Joe. I don't know, but just in any case, and then in this case specifically, how does that? That must make it almost impossible at times to kind of get started. Well, we live in a day and age where everybody, for the most part, everybody believes everything they hear. Um, there's not many controls whether or not somebody posts something on social media or or talks about something at the bar or ends up going to jail and they want some credibility so they make up some outlandish story on something that they participated in. And by the time that story is told or posted, then somebody else can interpret it differently. And um, depending on how that information is relayed to us, we have to try to track it down to the original source and everything's already convoluted as it is. I will say one thing, I, you know, I haven't had a whole lot of involvement with the actual Damien investigation in itself. However, I do know that every lead or theory, no matter how big or small or or credible or outlandish that comes in, we, we follow up on everything. Mm -hmm. um, whether it be um, executing a search warrant on a basement of a house and digging out a foundation <laughs> wall, or searching an area of the forest, uh, even including um, a lady that stopped in and she was a medium, mm -hmm. and she had some visions, and we followed up on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's been the hardest thing about this case? Like, is it the rumors? Is it the rumors that you think makes it so hard to dive into for you guys? You know, what's the hardest thing is that, that you get your hopes up that it's actually going to be a good thing. You go in and you, you get all the resources together and you go out there and it's, and it's not. You get the resources and you have the good, the good solid. Aside from the rumors, there were communication issues from the start. In the first days after the family realized Damien was missing, they say they were told by police that they had to wait two weeks to file a missing persons report. Both Dana and Stephen were focused on that two-week period roughly, though I think they're overlapping and I think they're for different reasons. Here's Dana on that initial part of things. It ended up being, we thought we filed a missing persons. And we didn't. <laughs> Apparently, it wasn't until like two weeks later that they had us go in front of Zerbe and that to find out that this was the official one, which we thought we had filed. But I don't know how to, you know, I yeah. thought just telling it was filing it. I reached out to Art Zerbe, who was the district magistrate at the time. In Pennsylvania, the district magistrate is basically the guy the cops bring you to if you get arrested. The first level of the Commonwealth's court system. These guys handle everything from landlord evictions to traffic and non-traffic citations, summary offenses, preliminary arraignments, bail hearings, and more. If you get busted in the city limits in 2002, you deal with Art Zerbe. I reached out to Art a few months ago and he said he didn't remember much from that time. It's unfortunate because according to Dana, he remembered Damien from the YMCA, where Damien worked out regularly. But that's one of the reasons he got the apartment, you know, where he did. It's Cedar Street. Yeah. Was the Y was right there because the Y was such a big part. Yeah, he was know? there every day almost. That Thursday, I know, was the last time he checked in. Um, yeah, and when this went in front of Art Zerby, because at the time he's the one that had to uh, sign the missing persons paperwork and stuff or be part of it or whatever, it had to go in front of him. 
he had told me as soon as he heard about this, he know because he'd see Damien at the Y, you know, he um, went down and looked to see and went through the books one Damien and he said, I was sure I had seen him since then. He said, but no, he hadn't been in since then. And that's a really good example of how time can be a detriment in cases like this. They say the first 48 hours in a missing persons case is the most important. I'm sure the experts rage back and forth between one another, but the logic is sound. The sooner you start looking for something that could be on the move, against its own will or not, the sooner you can close the distance between yourself and what or who you're looking for. So what happens after 20 years? You're not hoping for a happy resolution after 20 years. You're mostly just praying someone remembers something that gives you a foothold to start climbing down into the rabbit hole. One tangible fact, one thing you can go look up on paper. Damien's case remains open with the City of Warren Police Department. Journalists can do a lot in these situations, but police have more resources than we can dream of. Detective Tiffany Dyke is the criminal investigator heading Damien's case up, and she's ready to hear from you. She told me. Call Tiffany at 814-723-2700 or email her at tdyke at police.cityofwarrenpa.gov. If you're scared of cops, fine. Be that way. Call Warren County Crime Stoppers instead. And if your information helps lead Tiffany to remains, Crime Stoppers is going to give you two grand. So, that'd be cool, yeah? Third option is, and will remain until Damien's found, Stacy at Two Moms Media. Message her on Facebook at Let's Find Damien. I think what I wanted most from law enforcement was insight into how information was shared with media then, and why. Because up to that point, all I'd been able to do was speculate, in the opposite direction of Damien, about what was shared and with whom and why. What I knew from those first few trips to the library was that the first time Damien's situation was reported to the public by the Times Observer was on Friday, June 7th. So let's just do this one more time, you guys. Saturday, May 25th. Damien is last seen by James. Everyone agrees at that point around 6 p.m. at the Prospect Mansions. The two parted ways James told me last January. He went down to a family member's house to get some camping things, but discovered that she'd already headed out camping herself. With it. So, he said, he went home to get his own tent, waited around to hear from Damien, never did, and figured he missed out. Saturday, June 1st, Damien's best friend Dave called his stepmom, Stacy Sharp, to say no one had been able to get a hold of Damien for a few days. Dana and Stacy went to Damien's apartment, found a bunch of notes on the door, and went inside to find it basically undisturbed, but messy likely from that Friday night party Dave described in episode one. Monday, June 3rd, Dana and Janine go to the police department and file a report. And Friday, June 7th, seven lines appear in the paper's blotter. Stephen, Damien's brother, said he waited around for Damien to show up that night, even shooing away those friends from earlier in Damien's afternoon. His driver and the weed customer. Dana said it took her a couple days to get Janine down to the department from her home in Celeron, New York. And a time period of a week to deliver information on a missing person isn't necessarily weird, but it does seem to point to something people talk about a lot when they head down the 
Warren police didn't do anything or enough or some version of that path. Here's why rumor is such a nasty thing to deal with when you're trying to get to the truth. There's no standard unit of measure for enough. No two people are going to define that concept exactly the same in this situation and their relationship to Damien, not to mention their perception of him, likely played a part. And that doesn't even have to imply what it feels like it might imply that the police perceived Damien as not worth their time. Well, I mean, yes and no. In 2002, it was not uncommon for most people to recognize that an adult can choose not to interact with family and friends if they want. An adult can even go so far is to avoid being contacted or even found by those people. And that's a basic adult freedom, right? As Dana said in the last episode, though, from the other side of things, from the family side, to hear someone say that your loved one is allowed to avoid being found by you, who lay awake each night worrying about them, that's a blow. So Brian and I have talked this over a lot of times. I've talked it over with a lot of other people, too, and we agree it's probably pretty likely that you could have walked into a lot of police departments in the United States in 2002 with an army veteran who hadn't been home in a week and not raised a ton of eyebrows. We don't believe Warren was especially unique in that way. What was unique, honestly, pretty much the only truly unique element of this entire story was Damien. And Dana said that from her perspective, perception played a part. The police, she felt, warmed to the idea of a missing person who went missing while buying drugs. So fast forward to last fall, working with almost no names, a vague idea of what Damien might have been up to that day, and not much else, staring at those newspaper articles and seeing a few lines in a blotter item, a tentative small feature on the case a few days later, and then bam, like magic out of nowhere, Friday, June 21st, there are volunteer divers, dog handlers, all manner of helpful sleuths from all sectors, combing the hell out of the Allegheny Reservoir, that glacial playground in the ANF. Reading through the story, I found that land searches of Morrison Run, a road similar to Brown Run on the other side of Route 6, with lots of camping and party spots and a stream running down it. These roads connect the hill people to the townspeople, basically. They follow water, and they bring you up and down those hills. It was interesting to me back then because I knew Stephen said they'd considered camping at Heart's Content, well, Morrison Run serves heart's content from Route 6, just like Brown Run feeds Jake's rocks. I asked Tony and Joe whether the information provided to then-District Attorney Richard Hernan, cited by the paper as the spark that set off the elaborate efforts, was up for sharing. And here's what he said. Um, they started land searches, I believe, on the 14th or the 16th of June. It was the right. third full week. Morrison and then Run. Morrison Run, and mm -hmm. then other areas of the ANF. What other areas do you know? So we were in we went up Morrison Run. We also went to Rimrock, I believe, that area up there. We just we had uh, that was with Rick Hernan. He actually we got a bunch of people, mm -hmm. Allegheny National Forest people. We had um, the search dog. There was actual group search dog team group uh, mm -hmm. that they had dogs mm -hmm. it was a, a group for warren county that would look for missing persons they had all kinds of dogs back then that were trained it was after 9 11 so there was a lot of people that were involved in that kind of stuff that had dogs that were cadaver dog trained and all kinds of stuff like that mm -hmm. um i don't know if they still have that group anymore but they had there was a lot of dogs trained back then um there was sheriff's office all kinds of mm -hmm. stuff so there was a lot of Different officers that they, they came out and um, 
we all did searches in the in the woods where known areas where he would go and camp. I was going to say, like that. did that come from the interviews then? It did yeah. of areas that he would go and camp on that weekend, that Memorial Day weekend. Okay. So Morrison Run area, um, that was one whole day searched. We did another area up, like I said, Rimrock area. Mm -hmm. And then they switched to the water searches on the twenty third, I believe. It was the following Thursday. And Rick had said in the paper it was based on some information that came in, but he wouldn't elaborate. Do you know anything about what, what might have led them? Because they switched from the land searches to more water-based searches around the Devil's Elbow Bridge and the Morrison Run Bridge. So that was from possibilities of where someone might be actually dumped into the water where it would be deep areas. Okay. What about... Um, as tips came in, do you have any kind of timeline on, like, did it take a form almost? Did people have a narrative and then the narrative changed as the tips were coming in? Or was it just convoluted from the beginning? It was very, very circly. Yeah. Very circly. If I can use that word, it's it's a very, very poor word to use, but it was very, there was a lot coming in. And, you know, there was a lot of different agencies that, you know, everybody wanted to get the tip. Mm -hmm. um, the sheriff's office, uh, the state police, everybody was getting... It was a hot, it was a hot uh, um, item at that time. Uh, um, you know, it, what was the hot thing that everybody wanted to be involved with? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Not saying that anybody wanted to be the hero or anything like that, but everybody wanted to help. Everybody wanted to find them. Yeah. 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 So, you know, there was tips coming in. And, of course, uh, Rick Kernan had, it was a task force that mm -hmm. Rick Kernan actually created at that time. Um, so uh, it was a good thing, you know, mm -hmm. that we all were working together. Um, and then that's when... Officer Breck took it over because it, it was getting big. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and the news media got involved, and, and Chief Corman at the time said, yeah, I think this needs to be going to a different officer. Okay. So, uh, which, whatever it is what it is, I yeah. was still a junior officer. I've been doing uh, detective work for 14 years here. Um, I was put into that job back in 2008. Um, started off as an investigator and then promoted to detective. Uh, so through Zedonic, through Ray Zedonic. Um, so, I mean, we didn't have an investigative um, office for years and years and years. When they, did that start here? In 2008, we, we, uh, they put that back into the office. They used to have one, um, I couldn't even tell you how far along back they had a detective's uh, position. Um, you know, way back to the it was mid, mid to late 80s. Yeah. I mean. It was 80s or 90s. So even prior to Portman, maybe? No, it was in the it Portman era. It was in the Portman era. It was in the Portman era. Um, Dick Keel was the last detective. Um, and I couldn't tell you when he retired. Okay. I, I don't have that list of when he retired, but I know Dick Keel was the last detective. And they hadn't had one since. Um, when I originally started this case, they had taken me off of it. Um, was, I had it probably, I think I had it for the rest of the first year of 2002, mm -hmm. and then they give it to Rick Breck. Mm -hmm. They gave it to a more senior officer. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't want a junior officer handling the case. Uh, myself and Scott Taylor were kind of working on it together. They saw that it was going to be bigger than what it was. Rick Porman took me off of it, gave it to a more senior officer. He had it until I took it back in 2008. Mm -hmm. when um, Ray Zidonic came on and he made the investigator job. I, when he put me into that office, he, I actually started that office. I 
did everything um, as far as generating the office, establishing, you know, what does this, what does that with him, you know, what, what cases I would take, what, what I would do, actually bringing the Damien Sharp case back and, you know, regenerating what I had to do with the Damien Sharp case. So, Was that difficult, getting it back and then having to sort of put it back into your system? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. It was a lot of work. It was there was a lot of work involved in that, um, but it is what it is. I mean, that's different styles. It's just different, what you do. Yeah. yeah, it's just what you do. And there was a lot of time in between there that, uh, from what uh, Officer Breck did and, and what I what I had to do into that, and and he was still here, so I mean, it was still a lot where he had, we had to bring stuff over. So I mean. To round out this episode, I wanted to just share with you some of what Detective Comenti said in response to the feelings on the part of some family members that the police didn't do enough. Well, I mean, it bothers me in a, in a, in a fashion of being a father, mm-hmm. of being a parent, um, of Janine, just thinking of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I understand I understand where she's coming from. Um you know, at first, obviously, there's always the anger. I mean, the, the stages that people go through. The trainings that I've gone through and all the things that I've seen, not just the trainings, just in the 20 years I've been here, you know, I've, I've gone through so many trainings. I, I've, I've finished my bachelor's. I've earned my master's degree. I've gone through all those trainings. I'm a, I'm a chief deputy coroner. I've, I've done that since 2014. All of the things that I've seen and done. And all of the stuff that I've gone through and all the different stages of grief that I've seen people go through, I just can't imagine what she's gone through. The closure aspect of it. Exactly. And I went through everything with her. I went through to where they declared him dead. I went through that court hearing. I was sitting right next to her. I was sitting there in the courtroom with him. And I had to testify in the courtroom to when they declared him dead. Okay? I went with her and we had that rally and everything else here mm-hmm. when they brought... Um, Seely. Yeah, when they brought... Uh, uh, and I apologize, I just forgot her name when we brought her up. Monica. To, Monica Kaysen, yeah. yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, no when we brought Monica Kaysen up from North Carolina and, and, and they came up and, they, and she was a great help. And, and she got hooked up with Monica and Monica was the best thing for her and helped her out. And, you know, at first, Janine, you know, she, she did not like us she did not she she said bad things but of course that was the anger stage that was she didn't understand but she understand after that she understood what we were going through and it wasn't just it wasn't just me it wasn't anything else she wasn't mad at me she was mad at she was mad in general exactly i never took offense to it i never was mad Mm -hmm. i still i'm not i mean i understand i couldn't imagine what she went through Mm -hmm. it's her son and that's the part that i don't have that man As a mother, I'm struggling to write about Janine, mostly because I don't like to make comments on people I've never spoken with, and to be absolutely clear, Janine is only a source in this podcast insofar as a trail of interviews, some videos, some podcasts, but mostly in the local newspaper, exists like breadcrumbs. I used those newspaper stories to follow Janine through this case, through 2018, when, as Tony describes... Janine had Damien declared legally dead. I sit here now, writing this, as I have sat here all year, 
bereft of a way to put myself into Janine's position. It's very likely not an inability to do so at all, but rather the fiercest subconscious unwillingness for fear of being swallowed up into the ocean of anxiety that lies behind it. I have 10-year-old twins. They just turned 10 on May 18th of all days. The last day Janine ever heard from Damien. Their birthday this year had a little tinge of something like grief for Janine mixed in with the typical celebratory tone of that day for me. I travel with my kids. We routinely visit another OG mom and my two moms tribe in New York State. I've packed two cranky six-year-olds up and driven them alone as far as Albany. I'm about to fly alone with them this summer. I'm barely grown up to fly myself anywhere, so that should be a comical little shit show. Anyhow, when they were little and I'd take those road trips with them, every single time before we left, or at the first interstate outhouse we found along the way, if I forgot in the rush to get moving, you'd find a series of several high-definition photographs of my daughter's faces, birthmarks, uniquely identifying features, and the clothes they were wearing, including shoes, jewelry, and accessories. Front and side views. Little baby road trip mug shots, you guys. I'm a barrel of laughs as a mom, you bet. The point is that I live in abject terror every single day of becoming Liam Neeson in Taken, but with none of the inexplicable super stealthy spy skills or unlimited wealth or relative chill at all. I've been this way since they were little. It had nothing to do with Damien 10 years ago. My utter, utter fixation on the guy wasn't even in my conscious awareness at that time, I don't think. It was because, culturally, 20 years ago, we were a society where kids rode their bikes until dusk and beyond throughout their neighborhoods, likely full of all manner of nefarious scoundrels that have to register on a list today, completely unshielded from any of it. Yet, by the grace of whatever deity you like, we made it home every single night. Today... Road trip mug shots. Now, I'm conflating being 14 and riding my bike around the state hospital campus with being 22 and looking for a pound of weed on the cusp of a holiday weekend, but really, those fresh newbie drinkers, as Danica described herself and her friends that year, they were just the next level of 14 year olds with bikes in Warren County, weren't they? Developmental milestones out the ass, major life changes. Moving out, getting big kid jobs, having kids for some, like Stephen Sharp, who was 20 that year. 21-year-olds with cars riding around together like Brian or I riding bikes with our friends just looking for little adventures and maybe a tiny taste of trouble from time to time. Recently unfettered by new levels of independence, first apartments, first serious relationships. We grow up in stages, and it's hard for me not to see how fragile anyone is at that age. I know I really stocked up on those do-as-I-say-and-not-as-I-did experiences in the decade between high school and kids. I'm going to have so much explaining to do when my kids hit 15, man. I need to start preparing a defense now. Actually, I should get on that. But look. Yeah, Damien was a 22-year-old army vet who'd been to Bosnia and could have handled himself in Warren, had it not been for that knee. But to whoever cared for Damien with any kind of parental warmth at all, that was Squeaky Boy out there missing, and it must have felt like they were screaming their lungs bloody in a crowd of people 
who couldn't hear them at all. I documented my children's current appearances during road trips in case we were separated at that interstate outhouse that, let's face it, we were stopping at anyhow. That police and the media could more easily disseminate them to the world, which I guess I assumed in my sweet, silly little new mom brain would stop for me and my missing children. I mean, I have better odds than Janine did. My children are girls, and that already puts them near the top of the line for most news editors. It's not even intentionally ridiculous either, I don't think, but when a man goes missing, I think the media waits because we expect men to wander off from time to time. It's expected. It's not out of character for a man, right? That's just a cultural thing. So it must not be for your man, either. Out of character. As Dana said during her interview, when it is your man, you want everyone's attention. I would stop my world to find my own kids. I know that for sure. So to be living in a world that did not feel like it even blinked for Damien? Whether it did or not, for the family, it sounds like to me, it did not feel like the world even blinked for Damien biggest fear of my life as a mother, and I don't think that will ever change. Even when they're 100 years old and I'm laying dead in my grave anxious over them. Still. Since some of the teaser clips for the show have aired, Stephen reached out to let me know that some of his family is upset about comments that have been made. I don't know the nature of that feedback because it came to me secondhand. My line is 100% open at all times. You can reach me on social media at Let's Find Damien, or you can call and text me at 814-230-5855. You can also leave a message from our anchor page. See the show notes for instructions. All I can do is present everyone's answers to my questions, which I've tried to keep as neutral and unemotional as possible, but that's not really a metric when you're writing a case like this. If anyone hears an interview in this podcast and has a response, I'd love to give you the mic. Hit me up. I anticipate that more than one set of feelings will get hurt by something that's said on the show. There are a million sides to every story. But if you want the chance to make yours known, you have my number. Please use it. Smoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacy Gross. Executive producers are Stacy Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacy Gross. Our guests in this episode were Dana Kibbe, Danica Steck, Tony Cimenti, and Joe Sproveri. Thanks in this episode to Dana and Thomas Kibbe and Stephen Sharp Jr for their help in providing access to family-specific information. Also, to Ellen Paquette for her outstanding feedback. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening. Rate and review. It helps us out a ton.